Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ken Cosby. I mean, one time I said, oh, I did this for shits and giggles. And he goes, Kenny, I don't understand. When I do one, I don't do the other. <laughs> that and more. But before that, I would just like to give a shout out to our latest Patreon member, Tyler Hooten. Thank you so much, Tyler. Every time someone becomes a member for $25 or more per month, we give them a little shout out. But you can become a member of our Patreon for as little as $1 a month. And there are so many bonus stories and personal check-ins from me and interviews with people in the staff and all sorts of prizes for various levels. It's a great way to give back to risk because we desperately need it. Uh, we, we, we really do need as much help as we can possibly get financially from the people who love what we do. So become a member. There's so much to get out of becoming a member. And that's all at patreon.com slash risk. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the Bahama Soul Club behind me now. And I cannot tell a lie. I'm, uh, I'm in bad shape this week. It's been a really, really rough week in a lot of ways. Um, my cat, Donkey who is just my dearest little friend for 13 years. He passed on uh, Monday night, and it was very brutal, very quick, and uh, it was just quite an experience. And uh, I've done a lot of crying. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. It kind of when it rains, it pours with stressful, worrisome sorts of things in life sometimes. So, yeah, it's been a weird midsummer jolt. To be honest, worried about the future of this endeavor. We just really, really, really want to keep it going. And uh, sometimes we just worry about. How do we actually build an audience here? We have such, such passionate fans who, you know, speak to us about how much the show means to them. But it's very, very confounding figuring out how to reach a wider audience or how to break through to other parts of the entertainment industry. We're still this little, little, little fish in a giant pond. But I'll tell you one thing we know we're going to do, one thing we know we're going to do is to continue working as hard as we can 
to bring really meaningful, really revealing, really real human experiences uh, onto the podcast here, being shared with as much heart and soul as they can. And we've got a great show today. We're calling it Touching. Um, <laughs> because I'll be frank, I've been so distraught that I forgot the title that I came up with for, for this episode, but I just thought, well, all three of these stories are touching, so why not? <laughs> um, let's see, uh, our first storytelling, no, no, that's not how this goes. I'm supposed to say that in a little bit, we're going to hear from Eleanor Brimley. A remarkable story that she shared with us at the Risk Live show in New York City. I should give you a little heads up. There is some self-harm in that story. So that's something to be aware of. But before that, we're going to hear another story from Rafe Williams, who you can find at rafewilliams.com. That's R-A-F-E. E. Williams.com. Uh, he has a new comedy album out next month. And here he is at the Risk Live show that we recently did in St. Louis with a story we call Message in a Bottle. Thanks for having me back. My name is Rafe Williams. I did the show last year. It was super fun. I appreciate coming back, being able to do it again. The theme of this show was love. So I got to tell you a story. I got to be vulnerable. I need to know that I'm in a safe space because this story is a little hard for me to tell. So I just want to hear a round of applause from people. Well, no, not just. All right. That was a very call and response. Let me finish my sentence. Round of applause if uh, you've ever done something embarrassing in the name of love that you wish maybe you could have back. Okay. That makes me feel safe. That makes me feel safe, except this guy in the front row didn't clap. Makes me feel like he's judging me real hard right now. (laughs) But I feel relatively safe, so I'm going to tell you guys a story. When I was 19 years old, I met a girl named Regina right when I got back from basic training to be in the National Guard. I met a girl named Regina, and I I was crazy about her, right? She was great. She was cute. She was funny. She was smart. She was smarter than me, for sure. She was blonde, first blonde girl I ever dated. That was exciting for me. And more importantly, she was also the first girl I ever dated that didn't go to my high school. She lived two towns over, and so I was like, I'm probably broadening my horizons here. I guess I'm just fucking going to move to New York because I'm cosmopolitan as fuck right now. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I really liked Regina, and the bonus, besides all of those great things that I listed about her, she also was the manager of a blockbuster video. <laughs> yes, I'm that old, for those of you that weren't sure. And this was a big deal. This was like the late 90s, right? But I was a movie guy. That's who I was. I grew up watching movies. Movies helped raise me. I grew up in kind of a rough home, and movies were my escape. And I was a pretty good kid. Uh, I had just gotten out of basic training. I was trying to go to junior college. I still lived at home, but for the most part, I was a good kid. Movies informed a lot about what I had going on. And we dated casually for about three months, Regina and I. And she lived at home, and I lived at home, so we had to meet each other's parents. And I think we can all agree, especially guys in the room, I'm sure you'll back me up. 
Meeting a girl's dad for the first time can be a pretty tense situation, right? Okay, don't back me up on it. That's fine. I promise you it is nine times out of ten. It's a pretty tense situation, and it's an even more tense situation when that girl's dad happens to be your first sergeant at your National Guard unit. Which I didn't know till I got to the house. And he was cordial for the most part. He was kind to me for the most part, as kind as a 25-year military veteran can be, and a stiff upper-lip blue-collar dad who also knows you're there to try to do dirty business with his daughter. Do you know what I mean? Like, he wasn't going to be super cool, but he wasn't super mean. He was kind of the strong, silent type. And everything was good, and we dated for three months, and, uh, but there was one more player in this game. There's one more player in this story, and this guy was a problem. And that was Regina's high school boyfriend, Nate. He was still coming around. She dated him for years and years. And Nate was a problem. Nate was the quintessential asshole high school boyfriend, right? Like the sexy guy who was tan all year round somehow in the Midwest, which is weird. Like a super tight puka shell necklace. Super tight. I don't even know how he was breathing sometimes. He put spinning rims on a flare side 1996 Ford Ranger that said sport on the side. And he had vanity plates that said Nate Dogs with a Z. This is the guy I was dealing with, okay? This is who I was dealing with. And I was like, this guy will keep coming around. He was an asshole. He cheated on her all through high school. He cheated on her after high school. He made her feel like dirt, made her feel bad about herself, and he was controlling. But she couldn't get away from him, no matter how hard I tried. Now, because she worked at Blockbuster Video, Regina and I watched a lot of movies together. And I knew that I had to come up with a plan to get Nate the fuck out of the picture. (laughs) So... Regina's favorite movie was a movie called Message in a Bottle. Is anyone familiar with this 1999 hit starring Kevin Costner and Robin Wright Penn? Oh, it won two awards. The Raspberry Award and the Stinkers Award for Worst Actor for Kevin Costner. Who I think is treated unfairly. He is is an American legend and I think he should be treated as such, but I digress. For those of you that haven't seen the movie, I'll give you a quick... Plot synopsis of the movie. Kevin Costner is a widowed man who writes love letters to his wife, his dead wife, and throws them into the ocean, and they float away in a bottle. And Robin Wright Penn is an upstart reporter in Seattle who finds these messages, prints them in the newspaper, eventually finds Kevin Costner. They fall in love, but he can't get over his dead wife. It has a bittersweet ending, and I won't ruin it for you in case you're ever bored and want to order it on Amazon Prime. But the main plot point was there were messages, and they were in bottles. <laughs> so I was like, ha, I know what I can do to get rid of Nate. Because unfortunately, one of the things that's a problem, at least it's getting better now in this day and age, but in the 80s and 90s, men got kind of a toxic message about love and women, right? Every movie, every cultural touchstone that I saw, there had to be a grand gesture, some sort of grand gesture to win a woman's love. Whether it was Cusack with his boombox and say anything, or Heath Ledger doing a dance in front of the whole assembly and 10 Things I Hate About You, or you pick any other teen movie from 1980 through 1999, there was always some grand gesture. And it had to be big, and it had to be public, and it had to be done right. And I was like, <laughs> I got news for you, Nate. There's a new sheriff in town, because... I just got the best idea of the century. 
So I had my aunt go to the store and buy me a bottle of Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill because I'm classy. And I poured the Strawberry Hill down the drain because I was underage. And then I peeled off the label and I wrote Regina's name on it. And then I took parchment paper and I wrote a love letter, two pages long, about all the reasons I loved her and how much I adored her and how much I cared for her and why she was a good person and why she deserved to be treated wonderfully. And then, just in case I didn't seem like big enough of a dork, I took a cigarette lighter and I burned the edges of all that parchment paper. So it would look like a pirate's treasure map washed up on the beach. (laughs) And then I tied it with a little piece of red twine and I put it in the bottle and I put a cork on it and I got in my truck and I headed for Regina's house with way too much confidence in how this plan was going to play out. Now I got there and it was cool. I'm like, Nate, you're on notice. Only problem with my plan is when I got to Regina's house at 11 o'clock at night, unannounced, which, let's be honest, is pretty fucking creepy. (laughs) There was one problem, and that problem was, guess what was parked in the driveway at Regina's house? 1996 Flareside Ford Ranger was sport on the side with vanity plates that said, Nate Dogs with a Z. And I was like, this motherfucker... Is inside with my love right now? He's with her, and I'm out here on the lawn with my message and my bottle? (laughs) Now, a normal person, a sane person, would have cut their losses, got in their car, drove home, and lived to fight another day. (laughs) But not a young Rafe in love. (laughs) No, 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 no. No. I was like, she's about to get my message and my bottle. That's what's about to happen here today. So I strolled up onto her porch, (laughs) and I knocked on the door, as I had many, many times before, and I heard little footsteps coming down the hallway from the direction of Regina's room, as I normally did, and I started practicing. I started getting nervous. I'm like, this is my big Hollywood moment, right? This is my big speech, my big Hollywood moment. And I was like, I can't wait. I knew everything I was going to say. And the door opened up slowly. And there before me stood, guess who? I wish it was Nate Dog. It was her 45-year-old first sergeant dad wearing nothing but his boxer shorts and a puzzled look on his face. And he looked at me. And he looked at my bottle. And he looked at me. And he looked at my bottle. And then he looked back at me. And he said what the fuck is that? And I said, well, sir, it's a message in a bottle. I wanted to write it, and it's her favorite movie. He's like, shut up. I didn't really want to know, kid, okay? It was a rhetorical question. What I want to know is, what are you doing on my porch at 11 o'clock at night? And I was like, well, sir, I really care about your daughter. And this is for her, and I'd appreciate it if you would go get her for me. And he said, Jesus Christ. (laughs) All right, hold on a minute. And he closed the door, and I heard footsteps disappear down the hallway. And then I heard a muffled sound of talking, and I could hear my sweet Regina's voice, muffled as it was. And then I could hear her dad's voice, and then I could hear her voice, and then her dad's voice, and then silence. 
And then I heard the pitter-patter of small feet coming down the hallway to the door. And again, I geared up for my big Hollywood moment. I was like, she's on her way. <laughs> about to blow her mind with this bottle and this message. You know, <laughs> It was about to be on. So I saw the doorknob. It's like slow motion. The doorknob slowly turned. The door opened up. And there was her dad again. <laughs> and he was just like, I don't think she wants to see you, pal. <laughs> He's like, uh, I tried, but she was pretty adamant about not wanting to come out here. He's like, you know there's another guy in there, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I know that. Okay, I saw Nate Dogs with a Z. Yes, I'm aware. I was like, all right. Uh, I guess if she doesn't want to see me, could you do me a favor and give her this message in a bottle? And he just took his hand and pushed it back towards me. And he goes, you've worn my patience then. Get your fucking ass out in the driveway right now. And I'm like, oh shit. I just pissed off the most authoritative person in my life at that time. The first sergeant who was in charge of the entire battalion that I serve in is about to rip my ass out in his driveway because I came over here like a weirdo and tried to give his daughter a fucking message in a bottle. <laughs> so I went out and I stood in the driveway and I stood at attention for some reason. Like I thought that's what he wanted, which made it weirder for sure. <laughs> and five minutes later, he emerged. He had put on a bathrobe, I guess for me. I don't know. That was it. Still no shirt. And he came walking out to the driveway and I was ready. I was like, well, he's about to read me the riot act. And he put the tailgate of his truck down, and he had two cigars in his hand. He goes, sit your fucking ass down. And he handed me a cigar, and he sat down next to me. And then he reached into the bed of his truck and grabbed two cold Coors Lights, because he was that kind of guy <laughs> that just constantly had Coors Light in the bed of his truck, just for emergencies. I don't know. And he gave me a Coors Light underage, and he lit my cigar, and he's like, look, I got to level with you, kid. I like you. You seem like a good kid. You really do. And I got to be honest with you. I fucking hate that guy in there. <laughs> I hate him with every breath in my body. He's like, do you hate him? I'm like, I hate him. He's like, I fucking hate him too. Every time he comes to my house, I want to put him in a reverse chokehold. I hate him so much. But I love my daughter. And the heart wants what it wants. And right now, if I can be frank, kid... That ain't you. And that was hard for me to hear. And he's like, I want to tell you something about women right now. And he's like, sometimes some stereotypes are true. Sometimes when girls are young, they want to date an asshole. I wish it wasn't that way, but it's that way. They like a guy that's aloof and weird, and you never know what his next move might be. It's like when they get older, they typically will respond better to a guy like you. It seems like a nice sweet, thoughtful, caring guy that'll come over to my house with his heart on his sleeve and a message in a goddamn bottle. <laughs> but he's like, I want to talk to you about a second lesson. And he's like, the other thing you got to learn, and it's better you learn it now, is that a woman's heart is not a prize to be won. This isn't a county fair. She's a person, a human being just like you. 
And love is something that has to be earned every day, incrementally. You got to put the time in. And right now, unfortunately for you, that asshole in there has put in a lot more time than you have. And he's like, if it were up to me, I want you to know I'd choose you. Let's unpack that for a second. I'd choose you? That's straight from a Nicholas Sparks novel. Are you fucking kidding me? I got to have my Hollywood moment I was waiting on. I just didn't get to have it with the person I thought I was going to be having it with. I don't know if you've ever felt pathetic or humiliated in the name of love, but have you ever been so pathetic and so humiliated that the girl you were trying to date's dad had to give you a pep talk in his own driveway, humiliated? Because I have. It's crazy. And he's like, I think the best thing you can do is just get on out of here, cut your losses, and live to fight another day. I said, okay. I started to walk away. And then I turned to him and I go, actually, sir, I, I really would like it if you would give her this message in a bottle. And he just goes, Jesus fucking Christ. <sighs> Look, kid, I've tried everything with you. And he's like, if you really want me to, I will give her your message in a bottle. But as a man with 45 years of experience on this earth and over 20 years experience in strategic military operations, I highly advise against it. And I said, well, sir, I think we should complete the mission. (laughs) Got him. And he swiped the bottle and he tapped me on the shoulder and he said, get the fuck out of my yard. (laughs) And I got in my car, put it in drive, and I drove away. And I never heard from Regina again until earlier this week (laughs) when I knew I had to tell this story on a nationally syndicated podcast. And I reached out via Facebook Messenger, and I asked Regina, can we talk? And she said, yeah, it's great to hear from you. And I was like, hey, I'm telling a story on this podcast about when we dated, and I tried to win you over. Can I ask you a few questions? She said, sure. I said, do you remember when you were dating that Nate guy, Nate Dogs with a Z? And I kept trying to win you over, but you couldn't get away from him. And she was like, yeah. He was such a fucking asshole. What was I thinking? I should have gone out with you. And I was like, you goddamn right. You should have. Because this comedy thing's going pretty good. And I might be fucking famous soon. And I go, I just wanted to ask you about the night I came over. And I brought you that message in a bottle. And she replied, what message? What bottle? So, not only did her father give me a pep talk and give me some of the best advice that I've carried with me my whole life, that a woman's love is not a prize to be won and that love is incremental 
and has to be earned. 20 years later, I found out he did me a second salad. And he threw that fucking bottle in the trash can. So wherever he is, I'd like to thank him for that. And that is my message in a bottle story. Thank you guys for listening. A fucking message. In a Message in a bottle. What the fuck is that? Message in a bottle. Message in a goddamn bottle. Message in a bottle. What message? What bottle? I really care about your daughter. Shut up. I love my daughter. Nate Dogs with a Z. Jesus fucking Christ. Nate Dogs with a Z. I fucking hate that guy. Nate Dogs with a Z. I hate him. I fucking hate that guy. Nate Dogs with a Z. I hate him. I fucking hate that guy. Kid, I choose you. I choose you? Oh, God. Be gentle. So, uh, it's a Monday, and I'm sitting in the conference room with one of my three male bosses. He's a good friend. He's a mentor. I like him a lot. And he tells me that they have to let me go. <laughs> like, let me go where? Okay. <laughs> Uh, but when his eyes start to tear up, I start to get it. So um, I grab my shit and I leave the place that's been my home, uh, my work home for the past five years. Before this moment, things were great. I had a great apartment. I had a great roommate who was a really dear friend of mine. And um, I have a cat. And <laughs> I play this sport called roller derby. And I really, really love it. And now I'm laid off, and all of that is kind of just upended. And really quick, I want to be clear. I was laid off. I was not fired. Fired is when <laughs> fired is when you get caught like looking at porn on your company computer. <laughs> that was another guy. <laughs> it was not me. <laughs> so um, I'm on the subway with my box of shit. And it's super weird, because I'm going home, and it's like 11 a.m., um, it's kind of like being sent home from school sick, you know, when you're a kid and you get sent home from school and everything looks the same, like everything's in the same place, but like all the weird shit's on TV. Um, <laughs> I'm on the subway home and like there are no commuters that I recognize and I'm like, what are you all doing here? Like, what are, what do you do? What, who? And, <laughs> and I'm crying. I am crying because I'm terrified and I don't know what I've got, what I'm going to do and I have this stack of business cards that are now like useless like it's, it feels very New York. Like, you've all cried on the subway. <laughs> Raise your hand if you've never cried on the subway. <laughs> Liar. You've totally cried. On th- it will happen. <laughs> uh, so I get home. I get off the subway. I buy a box of wine. And I start watching Law & Order SPU uh, at noon on a Monday, because this is my life now. Um, and this day drinking sort of becomes a trend. Um, I have nothing to do. And it sort of numbs the fear that starts to creep in. 
when weeks go by and I don't get a job. Also, a fun feature of being laid off is that everybody wants to buy you a sympathy drink. And I'm like, cool, like I have no source of stable income right now. So, yeah. Uh, um, But the next few months, they, they aren't really easy. Have you ever played a game of Jenga with some asshole who likes to remove the two bottom blocks like right at the beginning? (laughs) Getting laid off was like playing Jenga with that asshole. So like every job application I get that I sent out that doesn't get returned, like another piece gets removed. And then like my grandma dies and then another piece gets removed. And my roommate... I love her to death, but she tells me that she's going to go move back home and become a masseuse now because um, New York just wasn't for her. And I'm like, okay, okay, that's fine. And all of a sudden, I just realized that this tower is super, super, super unstable against this really shaky foundation. And in January, I thought I just had a break. And this guy that I had a crush on when I was like 12 years old, starts to, he comes to visit to the city and he like wants to get drinks. I'm like, okay. And um, things are going really well. And I think they're going to start to progress like in this direction back to my apartment. And then he just stops and says, I'm sorry. I just broke up with this person. It's still too fresh. I'm like, get out of here. Like, yeah, okay. Of course. Of course that just happened. So the next day I'm feeling sorry for myself. And, uh, really sorry for myself and I I come home and I climb the stairs to my apartment and I open the door with my keys and um, there's this weird echo and at first I'm like fuck did I get robbed did I get... But then I open the door further and my roommate's couch is gone I'm like that, that's kind of weird and then I, I look around the corner and then all of her shit is just gone. And she had told me that she was moving out to be a masseuse. And I knew that was going to happen, but she just straight up and just left without saying goodbye, without anything. I turn around and I look at, I look into my kitchen and I see this bottle of wine on the table and a note. Bottle of wine because she knows me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the note says... Um, I know you don't feel like you have much stability in your life right now, but you've always been the stable one for me. <laughs> I'm like, what the fuck? Like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, is this a sick joke? I'm, st- you think I'm stable? And that was like the final Jenga piece that made the tower crumble. And I do, I crumble. I've got my keys still in one hand and my bottle of wine in the other hand and I just crumble to the ground and I do whatever what I do when I feel uh, alone and afraid and uh, with a bottle of wine in one hand I, I drink that bottle of wine when that doesn't numb that fear and the pain I take a clonopin because I have anxiety and I have a couple of those lying around um and when that doesn't really numb the pain I I uh I take an exacto knife and um, I bought it because I was going to do some DIY in my apartment. But in this moment, I I really felt like I had no options um, other than this knife. I wanted the outside pain to match the inside pain um, so that maybe I could just control this feeling that I couldn't name. I, I wanted a reason to cry because all the other reasons alone just felt so stupid. And I thought that maybe 
I would get a rush of adrenaline um, or some kind of catharsis or a reset button um, by, by, by cutting myself. I take my cat and I put him in my bedroom because I didn't want him to be there in that moment. And I never really cut myself before. And I didn't really know how people kind of went about choosing or uh, deciding where or how to do it. And I briefly considered Googling. <laughs> safest, safest place to cut yourself. <laughs> That felt a little too ridiculous, so I didn't. Uh, but basically, I had two criteria. One, I didn't want it to be noticeable because I, I didn't want people to ask. I didn't want the attention. I This was just for me. And second, I didn't want to die. I That wasn't the goal here. I just wanted to feel something. And so I, I decided the wrist... Uh, I've watched enough SVU to know the wrist is in a good spot. Um it's kind of like drilling into a really old wall. Like you don't know if you're going to hit some electrical shit. Things could go very south very quickly. So I, I settled on my upper leg. Um, it's not very veiny. I could hide it. And so I pulled on my pants in my kitchen. Um, and I take the knife and uh, I cut one. And then I cut again and it's deeper. And every time I do, like something giddy just releases in my chest. And before I know it, there are eight perfect inch long lines, six on one leg and two on the other. And it's bleeding and the blood is dripping down my legs and I'm just transfixed and looking at it like, you deserve this. You deserve to feel every bit of this. And then I realized that the blood is going to get on my pants. So um, I've got my pants on around my ankles, and I kind of do that shuffle to the bathroom. I slap a paper towel on it, and I go to the bathroom. And I was a babysitter, so I'm trained in first aid. I'm trying to stem the bleeding, and it's not stopping. And I don't know why I thought that it would just magically stop. It's an open wound. But I eventually, with enough hydrogen peroxide and, and paper towels, I get the bleeding to stop. And... Um, put some neosporin on it and some bandages and I just crash into sleep and then the next morning I wake up and I'm I'm hungover um obviously you know I've I've had enough to drink but also I'm just emotionally really just hungover and I'm sore like my legs hurt and I don't know why I didn't expect that to happen I have an open wound. I guess I just thought it would be kind of like this once and done kind of thing. Um, and at first it feels nice to kind of walk around with this secret. But then as days go by and it still hurts, I'm annoyed. I, I, I go to shower and it stings and I'm reminded of it. And I go to play roller derby and these wounds that started to knit themselves back together bust open again. And I have to start over with healing and it's like the shadow and this voice that follows me around that just says, you idiot, you idiot. This is not, this is not you. This isn't who you are. What have you, what have you done? Eventually, I don't have to wear bandages anymore. It scabs over and starts to heal. And every day I get to observe it. 
I get to observe the wounds as they heal. And it's funny, the location that I actually chose, it's next to this tattoo. I started playing roller derby after this breakup. Actually, when people ask me how I got into roller derby, I'm like, it was a really bad breakup. Um, So it was an emotionally abusive relationship. And he was the kind of guy where he threatened to throw himself off the balcony after an argument about an alarm clock. That was, of course, all my fault. And um, I crawled out of that relationship a shell of a person. And I found roller derby. And I found this amazing community of people. And I slowly started to get myself back. And when I finally made a team, we all got tattoos together. And um, for me, it was like a little celebration of getting myself back. It reminded me, you know, I've been in shitty situations before. But what lifted me out of that other one was other people. Um, It was my friends. It was my community. And I just realized I, I can't I can't go through this alone. Having a community is like not only as a source of support, but it kind of puts your experience on a spectrum, right? Um, kind of like this podcast does. It's either okay, my what I'm going through is not that bad, or oh shit, that person went through the same thing, and I don't feel so alone anymore. But when you're alone, you're alone. And um, now I've got this new roommate. She's really awesome. Uh, She has a cat. So my cat has a buddy. Um, I have a job that lets me get outside. And I have this amazing community of uh, just amazing roller skating humans who, yes, we kick the shit out of each other. And it's wonderful. But they support me every single day without even knowing it. So every day when I get dressed, I see two very different decisions carved into my leg, both born from really difficult moments. And I don't have all my shit completely together. Um, I don't think any of us really do. But every day I'm reminded at one moment, I see one thing that reminds me that I once felt so weak and so alone But in the same moment, I'm reminded that I'm strong and that I'm a part of something. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Talkie behind me now. And we just heard from Eleanor Brimley. Before that, a little interstitial by, uh, let's see, was it Tim Sutton? No, it was Robert Fulham. We have two Risk fans who each made message in the bottle related <laughs> interstitials for us to run this week. So we just heard Robert Fulham's. We're going to hear Tim's later. Holy camoles. I'm a little discombobulated this week, folks. I don't have my my assistant. <laughs> Donkey for the whole history of this podcast has his bed, his little bed sits right next to the desk where uh, I record and it's empty now so alright I keep telling myself I'm not going to cry doing the hosting of the show okay (laughs) let's talk about the fact you don't want to fucking wait in line for the post office do you? you don't want to like uh Deal with the traffic and all that kind of stuff. The lugging of the mail (laughs) and the the packages. It's a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money. There are these great discounts. It brings you all the services of the U.S. Post Office office right to your computer whether you're a small office sending out invoices or an online seller shipping out products you know stamps.com you just use your own computer and printer to uh, print official u.s postage 24 7 for any letter any package any class of mail you get five cents off every first class stamp and up to 40 percent off priority mail Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of an expensive postage meter. Right now, Risk listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale with no long-term commitment. We've been using Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio for years, and we love it. You just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Our final story on this week's episode is a real beauty. This one comes to us from Ken Cosby, and this was recorded at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles several months ago. You can find Ken on Twitter at Ken Cosby. And here he is now with a story we call Number one son. Thank you. So, um, it's early in the morning of Christmas Eve. Way too early for my black ass to be awake and alert to me like I'm in college. So the staple of my diet is basically Guinness, coffee, and donuts. And I find myself following this older Asian couple into a hardware store in upstate New York. Now, um, I guess this uptown was not used to seeing that type of diversity, like an Asian couple and an African-American guy. But the young white 
greeter who's wearing a Santa hat sees the Asian couple and smiles and goes, Merry Christmas! And then she sees my black ass just dragging around and her smile drops and she just kind of mumbles Merry Christmas like I'm not important. So the Asian woman grabs me and pulls me in close to her and points at the greeter and goes, No, this is my son. He is naturally born. The reason he's this color is because he stayed in the womb too long. And her husband reaches back and grabs me and goes, come on, son, let's go get this Christmas tree. Now, the look of racism mixed in with confusion on her face was amazing, but we had the stuff to do. We had to get this Christmas tree and take it back to the house now. So this was the Yee family, and their youngest son was my best friend. And when he found out I didn't have enough money to go back to Atlanta to visit my parents, he invited me to go spend the Christmas holiday with his family so I wouldn't be alone. And um, the thing that I learned about that, and I've got to tell you this right now, is you ever have a chance to spend a major holiday with an ethnicity that's far away from yours, do it. The first thing I learned is that if a Chinese family invites you into their home in the privacy and the volume of the conversation doesn't reach to a point where World War III is about to happen, they don't love each other. <laughs> They're loud. The second thing I learned is that the reason that my friend invited me is because I grew up in the South. So he knew I was going to be doing all the stuff he didn't want to do, like, you know, helping shovel the driveway in the morning <laughs> or helping prepare dinner that night or waking up at 4 o'clock in the freaking morning to pick up a Christmas tree. So I knew if I was back home in Atlanta, the first thing I'd be doing was helping my mom cook because I've been doing that since I was 10 years old. But you don't invade a man's cooking. And Mr. Yee was the one who always did all the cooking. Now, if you've ever seen any of the Bruce Lee movies, the very thin guy that looks like he's working for the opposite side that's always wearing the scarf, that's exactly what he looked like. But I saw Mr. Yee chop wood once and he's not the dude you want to fuck with at all. So I'm in the kitchen and I'm making hints that I can cook. And I'm not sure if he was ignoring me because of the language barrier, if he was ignoring me because he just likes to do all the cooking, but eventually he says, okay, Kenny, come on, help. So he's just making beef and broccoli, which is just nice, and I'm sitting back there, and I'm just chopping it up, and I'm doing it exactly the way that he wanted it, and then I got cocky. He's like, this looks good, I'm just chopping it away, and he just watched me for two minutes and not doing anything, and all he did was go, (coughs) and looked at me, and I had fucked up all the broccoli, and I knew I had to start all over. Now, I'm... Mr. Yee was a man of very few words, but whenever he did speak, it carried lots of importance. I mean, at that point in time, I'm like, I'm running around New York, I'm doing like stand-up, I'm in film school, you know, I'm a middle child. So as middle children, we're constantly trying to make noise so we can be paid attention to. But what he taught me at that point in time is that all you have to do is actively listen. And he was also a Debbie Downer which is weird. I mean, we were having this conversation everything is lifting up and the energy of the room is high and all of a sudden it hits a lull and he grabs my hand and goes, Kenny, did I ever tell you what it was like living under Shanghai Shek? <laughs> and the room just completely just drops off. But the thing that was amazing about that was the relationship that I had with him started in that kitchen. I mean, they jokingly called me number one son, which I thought was a joke until I actually got invited to a Chinese wedding. And I thought I was going to go into the guest entrance and like, no, you're family. You sit at the first cousin's table. Now, if you've never been to a Chinese wedding, woo boy, (laughs) that's something amazing to do. I mean, I got to the point, I'm sitting in the front of the table and I had to look back about 20 tables back to see anybody that wasn't Asian. I had to look so far back to see a white guy who I thought was a waiter. 
And I came back, and um, Mr. Yee and I decided to get drunk, like really drunk. Like we drank a bottle of Remy Martin between the two of us. And after we left the wedding, um, he says, Kenny, I know you can sing. Let me teach you Pink Peak Opera. So we're walking down the streets in Chinatown, wearing tuxedos, looking like the weirdest May-December gay romance you've ever seen. <laughs> as he's trying to work on the inflections of my vows as I'm singing Peking Opera. And at that time, I was so drunk that the whole family was embarrassed. And at the end of the evening, when I was walking back to my hotel apartment building, I gave him a hug and I said, I love you, Papa, because I love you too. So shortly after that, I moved out here to Los Angeles, and soon his sons moved out here to Los Angeles, and I would only get to see them every once in a while, um, and one time I actually got a chance to cook for him. I cooked ribs for him, like I cooked him in this whole southern meal, and I had like boiled down the ribs in Mickey's big mouth, and he's eating it going like, oh, Kenny, this is good, what is it? It's like, I tenderize the meat with malt liquor. It's not good to drink, but it's really good to tenderize meat with. It's like, oh, it's very, very good, I like it. And this relationship started to build more and more. And the thing that I learned is that um, if you live or get a chance to witness somebody that grew up in a tyrannical government and they've purposely moved to America for a specific reason, it's a beautiful thing. For me, I was an empty vessel that he could pour all these stories into. I mean, we think things are rough now, but just imagine growing up in a world where you had to flee that country, move here, marry a Japanese woman who technically should be your mortal enemy as far as history is concerned, and raise three very loving boys that have big hearts and wonderful families that I consider family. I mean, as an African-American, that gets stolen from us. I mean, I could take a 23andMe test. I could find out maybe what region of Africa my family comes from, but I'll never know the name. I'll never know that perspective, and that was ripped from me. So when he told me these stories, there was this connection there. And for me, he didn't have to deal with the pain of whatever he went through that brought him here to America. And there was always something haunting in his eyes, and I never knew what it was. But the thing about it was, I always had this joy about making him smile. I mean, if English is your third or fourth language, and you try and tell somebody a joke, they don't get it. I mean, one time I said, oh, I did this for shits and giggles. And he goes, Kenny, I don't understand. When I do one, I don't do the other. <laughs> like, come on, Papa. It's just like that. It's like, it's not that. I would tell him a joke. He's like, ah, yeah, that's funny, I guess. <laughs> I never knew what to do. But it was this interesting connection that we had. And as we started to grow, I started to realize what he taught me about listening to people actively. I spent my life teaching screenwriting. Most of the time, my brain is constantly trying to analyze people before they tell me what's going on. And I started to listen to body language and start to focus in on intent. Well, a couple of months ago, our friends called me and told me they'd been diagnosed with cancer. And I was trying to see if I could raise enough money so I could go out to New York, and I couldn't. And eventually, um, he had come out here because the winters were too rough for him in New York. And his family was here for months, and I didn't know it. And he goes, hey, kid, um, we're going to bring Papa up to Los Angeles when, you know, one of the kids gets a haircut. And we're not going to tell him, but we want you to show up to this restaurant and surprise him. And you know how the universe kind of works for you in a way? Um, the girl that I was dating at the time had invited me to a wedding. 
And she called me at like midnight, shortly after midnight, saying that the wedding is tomorrow, which I thought it's technically Saturday, so I thought it was Sunday, but it was actually Saturday, so I wasn't ready to go to the wedding, but luckily I was able to walk to this restaurant to see him one last time. And I walked into this restaurant and they were sitting in the back, so I could see them, but they couldn't see me. And their oldest son walks up and goes, hey, Papa, look who's here, number one son. And he turns around and goes, Kenny? And the cancer had taken his body and made him so thin. But the smile on his face was so bright and amazing. And I realized that this moment is all I wanted to do was talk to him. And I sat next to him as the family's talking about everything. And all he wanted to do was tell me about the things that he had gone through. Like being in Los Angeles for this whole time, beating cancer, getting pneumonia, beating that told me about the time that he told the woman on the plane that he had stage four cancer and got two bottles of bourbon for free. He goes, Kenny, that was a very good deal. <laughs> and during this dinner, he's just telling me what it was like to live in China at that point in time. And he's telling me what it was like about how difficult it was for him. And he asked me if I would help him write his life story. And I said, sure, Pop, I'll help you write the life story. You know, it's amazing. I will do that for you and thinking that that would give him a reason to fight a little bit longer. But he got to New York, and he saw his final resting place and decided to let go. And when they called me, I remembered that I, that first Christmas that we spent together, they had bought me a pair of pajamas, some flannel pajamas, that for some reason, in the moves from the West Coast to the East Coast, I've kept them, and they're way too short for me. They've got holes all over the place. And when they told me, I put them on and went to sleep, and I thought about him. There were two times I told him that I loved him. One when we were drunk singing Peking Opera, and the last time I saw him when I didn't realize it was going to be the last time I ever saw him. And I think about it now, about the gifts that he gave me, as far as allowing me to be a part of this other culture that I never would have had a chance to embrace, about accepting me truly as a family because blood does not a family make, and realize that even though I did not get a chance to fulfill his dream of me writing his life story, that tonight's a beginning, Papa. And I will continue to tell your story and let people understand and know that life is worth living and listen to the people that are here for you while they're here so you can never regret when they're gone. Thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Will Dorado behind me now. And we just heard from Ken Cosby, who you can find on Twitter at Ken Cosby. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com slash tour. And don't forget, we teach storytelling, too, at thestorystudio.org. And that includes corporate training. We do a lot of workshops for big clients like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and you name it. We do wonderful workshops on how to make your communication at the office much more human and emotional and compelling that is all at the storystudio.org folks today's the day take a risk an asshole. I gotta be vulnerable. I'm in a safe space. The story's a little hard for me to tell. Vanity plates that said Nate Dogs with a Z. With a Z. With a Z. Well, no, not just... Alright. Nate Dogs with a Z. Alright. With a Z. With a Z. Such a...